welcome back to The Voice of the Child. I'm Natasha, and my guest today is QC Cyrus Larizade, who is chair of the Family Law Bar Association and a master of the bench at Inner Temple. Cyrus specialises in private and public family law cases with a focus on cases involving sexual and emotional abuse. Today's podcast looks at the changes the UK's family courts have been making in order to deal with the coronavirus outbreak, guidance for birth parents whose contact with their children may have been affected during the lockdown, and a surprise reveal about the Court of Appeal's new drive to live stream family hearings. Hi Cyrus, welcome to the programme. Thank you for having me on the programme. Pleasure. Well, we're going to be talking about what the family courts are currently doing to address the COVID-19 outbreak uh, and the latest updates um, that the president of the family division and the government's been issuing. Can you offer us a a summary on what's happened so far? Uh, Yes. So uh, on the 18th of March, um, the Family Law Bar Association, of which uh, I'm chair, uh, decided to issue a notice saying that it was now unsafe Uh, for our members uh, to attend court in person. And we made a recommendation that we should have remote hearings uh, for the time being. And uh, other um, specialist bar associations agreed, the Bar Council agreed, and uh, together um, we, uh, in a united way, uh, moved towards uh, persuading uh, the powers that be, uh, the MOJ and HMCTS, to uh, review the safety of us attending court. Uh, There was a real concern by the MOJ and HMCTS that the courts should still be seen as a safe place to go. And um, one can understand that argument, but actually events uh, in a way overtook. And uh, it became very clear um, that remote hearings uh, were going to be uh, the primary position for the time being. And of course, there there may still be exceptions uh, where the court can accommodate hearings and needs to in person, uh, but those need to be very carefully managed. So so that, that, Natasha, was the sort of starting point. And of course, we then had to look at all sorts of uh, different issues um, which um, have arisen, both in terms of um, the sort of work that we do, um, which includes um, child arrangements, child protection, Uh, contact with children in care, domestic abuse, uh, fees, uh, legal aid to ensure that um, uh, parents and families are properly uh, represented, Uh, remote platforms, um, how we can manage those, how um, parents can have uh, and families can have access to those remote platforms, how um, best evidence can be given, how hearings can uh, take place in a fair way. Uh, delay issues, uh, and uh, moving on to uh, other matters such as um, alternative dispute resolution um, frameworks in order to try and ensure that at least uh, arrangements uh, are determined um, on an interim basis, uh, perhaps through a different setting. Uh, So there there are many, many different issues that we've been dealing with. And Natasha, things are coming in thick and fast on on a daily basis. And so I think it's very important for listeners to have some handle, uh, albeit a a basic one, uh, starting point in terms of what is going on in this, what I call the brave new world. 
at the moment, I think everybody's immediate concern or parents' immediate concern is how they can be dealing with their child contact arrangements. So we obviously have a stay-at-home requirement in place that the government has implemented. But there is an exception for parents who are not living in the same home and who have children in different locations. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, uh, I think the uh, president um, issued guidance uh, on the 24th of March uh, on the compliance with the family court child arrangements orders. And um, he describes it as a short statement in which um, advice is offered. Uh, But he makes it quite clear that the circumstances of each child and family will differ. And uh, he was uh, content to give general advice uh, in his statement. And he made it quite clear uh, that the expectation must be that parents will care for children by acting sensibly and safely when making decisions regarding the arrangements for their child and deciding where and with whom their child spends time. One size can't possibly fit all. And um, he made it clear that parents must abide by the rules of staying at home and away from others issued by the government on the 23rd of March. And uh, also, it was going to be important to look at any advice given by uh, Public Health England uh, as we went along. And so that was really a starting point. And he made it quite clear that where parents do not live in the same household, children under 18 can be moved between their parents' homes. And this uh, did indeed establish an exception uh, to the uh, mandatory stay-at-home requirement. But he made it clear that it does not, however, mean that children must be moved between homes. And a decision whether a child is to move between parental homes is for the children's children's parents uh, to make after a sensible assessment of the circumstances, including the child's present health, the risk of infection and the presence of any recognised vulnerable individuals in one household or the other. And so, um, and he emphasises the need for communication. Well, of course, this isn't possible in each case. And uh, we live in the real world and there are communication problems and uh, ongoing inherent issues in certain cases which make this difficult. And so sadly, some of these cases will have to be tested in court and the court may have to uh, issue um, interim orders and uh, interim arrangements um, which either um, vary the uh, previous arrangements or indeed uh, uphold and ensure that uh, previous arrangements are complied with. Parents mustn't use COVID-19 in order to, uh, in some way, uh, deny um, the other parents um, contact to uh, or time spent uh, with, um, with, uh, with their child or with their children. And so one needs to be aware that there is potential abuse of this system. And so um, each case does depend on its own facts. And in time, I do think that the the High Court, for example, uh, will issue uh, more guidance as we go along in relation to uh, this matter. But um, listeners need to be aware that this is an ever-changing landscape. Will there be uh, any kind of immediate relief for parents who may be experiencing uh, withholding of contact during the lockdown period, or will these cases be heard after that period? Well, I think I think it really depends on um, 
it, it depends on the applications that, that are made. Um, the, the current position is that um, the courts are operating, albeit remotely. And so uh, it, it's up to individual parents to assess the situation on the ground and to decide whether or not um, the child arrangements need to be varied, and if so, how. And if there's disagreement, then obviously it is the court that will have to deal with that. Um, and uh, I'm afraid e each area, each location, um, is uh, dealing with a, a range of issues and a range of cases. And so, uh, again, uh, there isn't a standard format uh, other than um, if there is a breach of the child arrangements order, um, then an application can be made um, for either uh, enforcement or uh, variation in certain cases to allow some form of child arrangements to take place. Uh, and um, parents uh, are, are still able to uh, access the court system, although it is a different system at the moment in terms of the way that hearings are taking place and, and heard. And I, I'm afraid, Natasha, uh, not all cases will be heard uh, and uh, in a timely fashion um, because of the difficulties that the uh, courts face. As you mentioned earlier, the president of the family division has issued guidelines for um, contacts in primarily private family law cases, so those involving parents who are separating or divorcing. But at the moment, there's very little information available, for example, for birth parents who um, have contact in public family law proceedings. Um, and they are confused and not quite sure um, as to what they can and can't do in relation to their contact. Uh, are we going to be able to look forward to some guidelines on that area soon? Uh, yes, the, the answer is this is an area that has concerned the Family Law Bar Association greatly. Uh, I've taken soundings from uh, different regions about this, and local authorities uh, in different parts of the country have issued their own uh, local guidance about how to deal with contact, for example, with children in care. And sadly, in, in some cases, um, uh, the contact is, is simply remote. Uh, other areas um, are uh, looking at different ways of dealing with this so that there isn't a standard approach to just simply, or a policy decision to simply promote remote contact. And so um, the president has been consulted about this. Uh, he uh, has very regular, possibly even at one stage, um, it, it, it may still be daily, but but he, he has spoken to um, the um, the assistant directors uh, on a very regular basis. And so he has his finger on the pulse of what is going on, both the difficulties that local authorities face and also um, through all the associations, the difficulties that parents and children are currently um, experiencing. And his view is that uh, we're waiting for the Department of Education to uh, issue some uh, guidance they were waiting to sign that off at the end of last week and uh, it, it's it's likely to be issued uh, today uh, and if not today very very uh, soon and um, apart from that uh, the the advice is that these cases will need to be tested in court um, if there isn't agreement between the local authority and um, the parents and if it is felt that they are in breach of their statutory duty to promote reasonable contact then applications will need to be made um, for the court to um, to make orders in these sort of cases. 
The guidelines are of course very new and likely to be updated and things are developing as you say very quickly but one of the initial distinctions that we're seeing between contact for parents who are in private family law proceedings and those who are in public family law proceedings is that contact between parents in say divorce or separation cases is actively being promoted um, within that stay-at-home exception whereas the exact opposite can be said for public family law cases where contact with birth parents appears to be being pushed back in some cases um, stopped completely. Is there a reason for that distinction? Well, I, I, my view is I, I think that um, the the interpretation that's being put on the government guidance is is the problem here. That local authorities are concerned about exposing their uh, staff to um, the COVID nineteen virus, which I think is understandable. Um, they um, have got a responsibility and a duty towards um, their own staff um, who are supervising the contacts, but not just supervising uh, staff that transport children to uh, contact and so on. So I, I, I think that the focus is very much on the concerns that uh, members of staff have at local authorities uh, to ensure that their own staff aren't exposed to uh, C-19 um, uh, risks. Do you think that that decision, as understandable as it is, might impact children negatively in the long run? I think it might well do. Um, that um, the the uh, the fact that children um, are not able to have uh, either uh, remote contact because of technology, or um, or, or, or indeed uh, uh, physical contact, um, will have an impact on some children. Um, in relation to some, I suspect it will be significant. It depends on how long it goes on for, um, how they are, uh, how they are supported during that period. Um, but obviously, I'm I'm not a, uh, I'm I'm not a um, a social worker uh, or a child psychologist or indeed a, a practitioner um, who works with children. So I couldn't really offer you a an expert opinion on, on the impact, simply an opinion from a layperson's point of view uh, who happens to practice children law. Well, we touched briefly on the kinds of applications that might be heard during the lockdown period in family courts and appeal courts relating to family matters as well. Can you give us a, a breakdown of what kinds of applications will be given priority during this period? Uh, I'm afraid I can't answer that question um, because I'm, I'm not clear about um, what the um, position is in relation to that. At the moment, um, the FLBA on the 18th of March had suggested that, in fact, hearings should uh, go ahead on a priority basis until remote platforms could be set up. Um, I, I, was, um, I was hoping that that would be done within a few weeks. Um, what we uh, were amazed about uh, was that within a very short space of time, uh, in fact, courts were up and running, dealing with a whole range of matters telephonically and uh, and also audiovisually. And so the idea that only priority cases would be heard has, has been overtaken essentially by, um, from, from what I um, have received from uh, all um, parts of the country, um, the various regions uh, is that in fact um, we're having um, we're having case management hearings um, we're having um, applications for uh, injunctions um, we're having um, 
IRHs, um, uh, issues, re resolution hearings. We're having final hearings in some cases. So the idea that um, there is a hierarchy of, of um, uh, essential or priority applications uh, may well be out there, but actually all sorts of hearings are being heard. It depends on the technology, it depends on access to that technology, and it depends on the availability uh, of the court to be able to deal with those cases using the range of technology available. Well, that's a very interesting point, the idea that depending on what courts have in terms of capacity and resource, cases will may or may not be heard. And, and that's actually fascinating. Uh, we have, as of, I think, this morning, an HM Courts and Tribunal Service update telling us what kinds of applications are considered to be priority. So in public law, children cases, those are emergency protection orders, interim care orders, renewal of interim care orders, secure accommodation orders and deprivation of liberty authorizations. And in private law children cases, urgent applications are considered to be child abduction applications, domestic abuse injunctions, um, female genital mutilation and forced marriage protection orders, and divorce, um, where there are urgent applications in that arena. So we've got that. But as you say, um, it may very well differ from court to court, um, given that you've explained that technology may play a large part in what courts can and can't process. Taking us on to um, the next topic, which is the family courts in their physical capacity. So which of the family courts at the moment are open, if any? Well, um, there's, a, there's, a very, um, there's a very useful guide. Um, if, you go to the, um, if you go to the Justice um, website, um, you have um, Courts and Tribunals Tracker List during the coronavirus um, outbreak. And so HM Courts and Tribunal Service sets out the number of courts um, that are open. Um, on the 2nd of April, um, there were 161 open courts, 125 staffed courts, and 80 suspended courts. So, Natasha, there's a, that there are a, a three categories of courts. Uh, those that are actually open for face-to-face -face hearings, uh, those that staff and judges will be able to um, uh, work from, um, those are the staffed courts, and then 80 where um, they will be uh, closed um, temporarily, those are known as the suspended courts, and those will be updated on a regular basis. Well, in terms of remote hearings, they've obviously been rolled out and lots of courts are operating them. Have you had any personal experience of remote hearings? And if you did, how did you find them? Well, I've, I've done, uh, I have uh, so far um, had uh, the experience of a very well-managed um, set of telephonic hearings, um, but uh, th those were with um, uh, clients uh, participating on the line and also with clients uh, not actually participating, but being uh, uh, available at the end of a, a second telephone line or um, by, by email, so that if I needed to take instructions, it was possible. Uh, these things can only take place uh, with the consent of the client and uh, with the consent of the uh, other parties and the court and the technology needs to work. So telephonic hearings have been fine for the basic cases, and they've all been case management type scenarios. Um, I've also conducted uh, Skype for business hearings, again, case management uh, type hearings, which have been successful. Uh, I've conducted um, 
a hearing using Zoom uh, and several advocates meetings um, using the Zoom function, which seems to work very well. And um, as you uh, no doubt know, um, but uh, the listeners would, would certainly appreciate, um, the FLBA have been working very closely with uh, the senior judiciary, and in particular, Mr. Justice MacDonald, who has uh, recently issued, um, at the end of last week, uh, version three of the uh, remote hearing guidance. And in it, he recommends that uh, in the current climate, courts uh, should be flexible, and that what he describes as the smorgasbord of uh, remote hearing options should be available to uh, the different courts, different parts of the country. And so um, you won't have um, one platform fits all at the moment. Some courts uh, are able to accommodate um, uh, only telephonic hearings. Uh, Some uh, local authorities um, use a particular platform and not others. And so what one needs to coordinate these, uh, some use Skype for Business, um, which is already preloaded on the judicial um, laptops. Um, but um, there are ways of accessing Zoom and, um, for example, life size. And so it, it's, a, it's a work in progress. The HMCTS are uh, uh, trying their best to roll out um, the cloud video platform, uh, CVP, um, which is in its uh, infancy. And so, uh, as you as you said earlier on in our discussion, uh, it's a it's a rapidly changing landscape, and um, we we've had success with a um, a long trial lasting I think over ten days on Zoom, um, and uh, a number of us have um, experienced um, Skype for Business uh, as a substantive hearing lasting a number of days. And so there are facilities available and continue to be available to be able to actually carry out not just the the urgent hearings or the priority hearings, uh, but actually the substantial um, fact-finding and welfare hearings. But uh, it all depends on the circumstances of each case. And one must uh, look very closely at the impact it will have on witnesses giving best evidence and clients giving um their best evidence, making sure that justice is done versus avoiding delay. Um, and there are lots of issues about, for example, interpreters and intermediaries. Um, uh, th- those who also help us with sign language in certain cases, being able to participate. And not every case can go ahead. And some cases will inevitably have to be adjourned um, for a, a later date. And, uh, and the president... Um, is looking very much at what he calls the recovery. And I'll come on to that in due course. Are these meetings being recorded in any way? Uh, yes, they are. So um, the, the advocates' meetings are, are not recorded, um, but the, the hearings are all recorded. And um, they are either recorded by the judge or they are recorded by the lead advocate who then transfers the recorded file uh, to the judge. 
I, I read that um, report that McDonald sent out and I thought it was wonderful. And as someone who loves tech, um, it was really heartening to see that we are sort of being jolted into the, the 21st century, albeit for um, slightly sad reasons. Um, but one of the things that did concern me a little bit was the emphasis on Zoom. I don't know if you've seen in the last few days, but there have been some privacy concerns over Zoom um, exposing um conference calls and data from those calls uh, online, so much so that the Department of Education in New York City in America has banned Zoom over its privacy concerns. Do you think that there will be somebody reviewing those guidelines who will be aware of all these issues and who will be updating and amending them as we go along? Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that that is the case. Um, we, we, we know that uh, a number of individuals have been in touch with Zoom, um, with the uh, Information uh, Commissioner's Office. Um, we've looked at um, other issues with other platforms as well. And uh, we are always updating our knowledge and our ability to be able to assess uh, risk. And um, I, I have also read a number of accounts about Zoom, both positive and negative, uh, both, um, both in terms of um, how those privacy issues um, have, have been uh, addressed and uh, also reports where they're exposing those. But I can tell you that hearings are, are taking place, have taken place, are taking place currently in the High Court as we speak today. And, um, and we're using the various platforms. Well, the president of the family division has spoken about transparency and the need to have it perhaps now more than ever during this particular period, but the right kind of transparency, of course. Um, so what kind of measures are being put in place to make sure that that transparency is enhanced? Well, I think I think that the most important aspect of this is that, again, um, Mr. Justice MacDonald sets out uh, in Section 5 uh, of um, his uh, various versions, but in particular version three, the latest version, uh, the importance of transparency. And um, he makes it clear that where a hear hearing is being held on multi-channel communications uh, platform, an invitation is sent to the press, um, either by the lead party and um, or that there is on the cause list, that's the list setting out the hearing, um, the clear notice that there is a remote hearing taking place and members of the press are uh, allowed to contact um, the court service uh, in order to make sure that um, they have the opportunity of contacting the court's clerk uh, in order to join the remote platform uh, and to make any submissions uh, in, the, in the usual way about joining hearings. So the importance of the press being able to contact um, the court service in order to be able to participate in a hearing has been outlined in very clear and simple terms uh, in uh, McDonald J's guidance. Still on the subject of transparency, a lot of people were very heartened to see um, sort of mid-March, I think it was around the 16th of March, an announcement that the Court of Appeal would be live streaming family law cases, which was touted as a legal first for, for such cases. Um, but we haven't had any updates on, on that streaming process. Do you have any information on what's happened with those cases? Well, um, actually, Natasha, the Court of Appeal has been live streaming um, cases since 2018. Um, they suspended live streaming um, 
uh, recently because of the COVID-19 situation. And as soon as I have an update, I will let you know. But I, I know that they are anxious in the same way that um, the family court generally is anxious to ensure that there is as much transparency as possible. So watch this space. So why has that live streaming stopped? Because there are no physical cases being heard in the Court of Appeal? You're going to have to ask the Court of Appeal that. Okay. The last question I have for you is in relation to the future of family law. So, Cyrus, what do you think the future of family law will look like? Well, I think um, it's too early to tell what it's all going to look like. But I can tell you that we will never return to the position that we were in before. I think that technology is going to be embraced uh, in a way that um, has never been embraced before. And so uh, what that looks like ultimately, I'm not sure about yet. It's, it's far, far too early to tell. Uh, but I think there's going to be much greater use of technology going forward. I think that the court service um, and the physical buildings will, of course, continue. Uh, there are still many cases which would require um, proper physical face-to-face hearings. I'm talking about family law rather than, for example, criminal law and jury trials. Uh, but but the reality is that um, I think this remote way of uh, working will, um, will, will find a, a very clear pattern in the future and will develop and expand into something very effective um, without sacrificing those very important cases which, which do require face-to-face participation in a physical setting. Um, but but um, I have to tell you, Natasha, there are all sorts of uh, other issues um, at, at the moment. So when you're looking at the future of, of family law and what it looks like, uh, I think there are still many, many areas. For example, I think that um, listeners need to be aware um, that there has been an increase in um, domestic abuse cases and police call-outs in certain areas. And uh, those are um, very concerning uh, and they are um, triggered in part by by the COVID-19 situation and the situation that people find themselves in. And uh, that is an area where the FLBA is working uh, very hard with uh, other associations to try and address in the interim period. Um, but but I, would, I would want, for example, uh, the gateway rules to be uh, relaxed so that solicitors can certify uh, that uh, there is evidence that domestic violence uh, has taken place. Uh, and so the relaxation of those sort of rules in order to ensure that there's proper protection in place and legal aid is uh, granted. Mm-hmm.